to talk about a mixture of history and legend is how folk stories are born. Reality exists only through experience, and it must be personal experience. However, once related, even personal experience becomes a narrative. What is important is life. Reality is simply that I am sitting by the fire in this room which is black with grime and smoke, and that I see the light of the fire dancing in his eyes. Reality is myself. Reality is only the perception of this instant, and it can't be related to another person. All that needs to be said is that outside, a mist is enclosing the green-blue mountain in a haze, and your heart is reverberating with the rushing water of a swift-flowing stream. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Picha. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. We're glad to have you here for this episode on Gaojing Zhen's Soul Mountain. We're going to get into the plot. We're going to start talking about this in just a minute. But as always, a, a few items of business first. Uh, you can reach us on social media. We're on Twitter at the readers k we're on facebook facebook.com slash the readers karamazov you can always send us an email at the readers karamazov at gmail.com and you can find our podcast on apple podcasts on spotify and at our podbean the readers karamazov.podbean.com thanks for tuning in tell a friend if you like the show uh, and do send us some feedback we don't have any this week but we've had some good reader uh-huh. questions recently and we love them. We like to keep the conversation going beyond the confines of what we say here. So we hope to hear from you soon. We are wrapping up the second portion of our season now. Uh, we started with Middlemarch and did four episodes on that. You can go listen to all of those. They're bingeable now. We then moved into section two of our season of podcasts related to Middlemarch. We've been talking about the key to all mythologies. So we have a wonderful episode up Carl's pick on Candide by Voltaire, and then last week we did my first pick, Aristophanes' uproarious comedy, The Clouds. And now we're rolling up, finishing up this section uh, with Friedrich's first pick of the season, which is Gaojing Zhan's Soul Mountain. A slightly different take on what it means to have the key to all <laughs> mythologies, yeah. but, but a really rewarding book to read nonetheless. So we're going to dive into it. We're going to talk about some of the political, the religious, and philosophical contexts for this book. But first, as always, I'm going to give you a brief plot summary before I throw it over to Friedrich. Soul Mountain uh, was released in 1990, one of the major works of Gao Jingzhan, who later would receive the Nobel Prize in Literature. He was, a, a by this point, an exile from China. He was living in Paris as he finished up this book. But he's a Chinese novelist, uh, playwright, painter, does a lot of different things. And this book is kind of hard to describe. It's sort of a novel. It's sort of a memoir. It's sort of a work of cultural anthropology. It's got some poems in it. It's got some songs in it. It's got a little bit of everything. 
The story behind it, which is important for the context and kind of comes out somewhat in parts of the novel, is that Gao Jingzhan uh, was undergoing some political troubles in China in the early 80s, and then simultaneously he received a diagnosis of lung cancer. He went and he had gotten a scan and it revealed some lung cancer. He was very concerned. He thought, oh, crap, I'm going to die. And then he went back about a month later and they said, wait a minute, there's no cancer here. What, what, did, what were we thinking? And so that kind of launched him on a, a bit of an existential crisis combined with the desire to escape the political persecution that seemed to be coming his way. So he hopped on a bus and just went out into the Chinese countryside and kind of wandered around. And that's a lot of the background for this book. Obviously, when you're dealing with a work of fiction, it's never good to assume that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between the background information and what's going on on the page, but that does form the context for this novel. So the novel is quite differently structured. It's essentially a series of alternating chapters, for most of the book at least, alternating between a first-person perspective, which I think we're supposed to take as more immediately representative of Gao Jingzhan as the author, although of course, again, we can't assume it is actually him speaking, but an author figure similar to Gao Jingzhan. And then it, that alternates with a series of chapters written in the second person, which is not something you normally get in a book outside of maybe the Choose Your Own Adventure series, but a, a series of no, uh, chapters written in the second person in which another figure who also seems to resemble Gao Jingzhan quite a bit kind of goes around and falls in love with a woman and has these long conversations with her. Meanwhile, in the first person chapters, Gao Jingzhan, or the, the author stand-in, is Going around the Chinese countryside, he's kind of collecting folk songs, a la Ray Fun Williams or something. Uh, he's talking to Chinese peasants, getting a sense of how they view the world. He's visiting Taoist temples and Buddhist temples, trying to get a grasp on what life is really about. And so that's kind of the book. It's, it's a long book, 500 pages. There's a lot going on. It's a very, some, in some ways, a slow book, but a very rewarding book as he sort of sorts through his life bit by bit, without really reaching any conclusions by the end, I think it's fair to say. Uh, so I'm going to throw it over to Friedrich <laughs> to tell us a little bit about why he picked this book, and then maybe a little bit about the context in which Gao Jingzhen is writing. Yeah, thanks for that great summary. I think, I just want to say that it, it falls into a genre that you mentioned that I really love, maybe a sub-sub-sub-genre, which is the story of the guy collecting folk songs or folk tales, and like retrieving the countryside's histories from it uh like and, and there's a movie in uh by the director chen kai ge who did um feral my concubine called yellow earth that came out about six years before this book in which a communist cadre goes to like some remote part of china to collect their folk songs and then rewrite them with communist lyrics and so it's interesting because he's doing this in a time like immediately after the cultural revolution when people were being corrected, essentially sent down to the countryside uh, to be re-educated. And he's going down to the countryside in a different way to, if we're talking about key, the key to all mythologies, to collect mythologies. And not really with purpose, but just as part of this kind of grand storytelling compendium, because it's not really a novel, as uh, Soren was saying, in a straightforward traditional sense. But I think the reason I selected it is because I wanted to pick something that was far from Middlemarch <laughs> and then think about how Middlemarch is a book that nevertheless can like grab hold of things that are far away from it. And I think that these books are talking to each other a little bit. It's a book that's in a provincial setting by a guy who's living, you know, in Beijing or Paris, depending on when he's working and writing. And he's looking for people making meaning in a place where history isn't happening 
in the sense that we often think like when Dorothea goes to Rome and sees, as we talked about, the wreckage of history. Here he's seeing a much different history, but it is still wrecked. And there's a lot of violence, uh, violence against women and bandits and things like that. Um, And he's just sort of letting that stuff accrue as he's telling these different tales. But it's also an exploration of realism and it it begins with someone asking about like i'm looking for reality meaning maybe in the sense of like i'm looking for the real life in china what it really means to live since i've had this cancer scare basically but it also becomes a book where someone is trying to test out like what is the self and how does someone in a web of social relations define their self and then what does it mean to write a realist novel and is this a realist novel or is it is it something else? So I think it's asking some similar questions to, to Middlemarch and George Eliot in ways that we've started to explore in uh, earlier podcast episodes. Thank you for that, Friedrich. That's a really great introduction and sort of context setting for a lot of the different things that this work, whether we want to call it a novel or not, is doing. I think it might help somewhat to start with this central narrative gambit of the book which is this alternation between first person and second person perspective because it's so unusual maybe we can just think through some of what that's doing to the feel of the novel and how that's helping Gao Xingzhen maybe explore some of his philosophical ideas about the self and what it means to be an independent self in a society where maybe he's not supposed to be that independent self Carl what did you make of the the alternation here that's going on this alternation does a good job of giving the reader a sense of like the social construction aspect of selfhood and thinking about the book as a kind of, you know, ethnomusicology for not necessarily music in this sense, but different aspects of the culture around him and history, capital H and people in these towns and religion and politics, bringing all that together the book is saying something in both the I and the U passages about this construction, how selves are constructed. And then the author is being pretty reflexive about that fact with respect to themselves and kind of laying that before the reader as well and not saying, I come to you as a fully formed person telling you how I came to be and everything is sort of finished in my selfhood. Instead, it's being constructed as we're walking with them and meeting different people. It's changing and constantly kind of in flux. I also think that jumping back and forth, it's jarring. Like if, if it was just the chapters where Gaoxing Jen is like in the mountains, in the river valley along the Yangtze River, and, and it's just driving from place to place, it would feel more like that picaresque that we've read. It might feel more like a Sabald thing, mm-hmm. but like it's that travelogue and then these odd disembodied conversations almost. And I like what Carl is saying about like the different ways they're approaching a self. And I feel like when I was reading it, I was thinking that one of the ways those I chapters, the first person chapters in the river Valley going through the woods, going through the, the folk histories is like approaching, trying to learn about your world and the way that it's making meaning for you and the way that you are situated in it, especially in a time of like great change, which, you know, Middlemarch is a, is set in time, a time of great change in Britain. This is set in a time of great change in China. Cultural revolution has happened and now we're in uh, Gaiga Kaifang, the opening reform of Deng Xiaoping. And those searching outward sort of exterior chapters are then 
interleaved with the she you chapters that seem more like exploring i don't know like a self that's just like built through <laughs> play and conversation and introspection even although they're dialogues but it's like not clear if they're actually dialogues between a two different people or if it's just the same aspect of the same person. And so it's like two different pursuits, one inward and one outward and, and it's jarring, but maybe as Carl was pointing out, they're striving towards some similar goal. If I can build on that for a second, one of the things that I noticed as distinctive between the two sections, not just obviously the narration, which is the most noticeable thing, but I do feel like the stories themselves are functioning differently. Mm-hmm. The stories that are being told and conveyed because in the first person sections, it is very much like ethnomusicology or cultural anthropology where it's a sort of detached story being told that's he's almost relaying not history itself but a sense of the historical he's reporting what other people have brought to him and then in the second person sections the you who's speaking to the to the she is telling these stories almost relentlessly to her Mm-hmm. But they're stories that take on almost a, they have a more mythical element to them or something like they're more present, they're more immediately real than in the other section. And so it's almost like he has become not an outside observer, but a teller of the stories himself. And so it certainly becomes a little bit metafictional, but it also becomes, it's almost like it buys in more to the mythological power of stories than the more detached sections where we have the first person who's merely reporting what other people are telling him. There's a moment on page 314. It is only by getting rid of you that I can get rid of myself. However, having invoked you, it is impossible to get rid of you. And then there's this, like, I've thought of an idea of what would happen if you and I were to change places. In other words, I would be your image and you instead would be the concrete form of me. This would be an interesting game. But then the speaker here goes on to say, you know, but these kinds of games aren't that important. Life is kind of his ultimate goal, his ultimate thing he's trying to represent, and life does not have an ultimate goal. So they, they do come together, the I and the you, at least in, in, at least right here, in a certain way. And I think what Friedrich was saying makes a lot of sense with this passage, the outer and the inner. I'm glad you brought us here, Carl, because this is one of the more interesting chapters in, I think, the whole book, because... The eye is starting to investigate that relationship. And here's something, since this is a podcast of philosophy and literature, right near the very end of this chapter, he says, Fiction is different from philosophy because it is the product of sensory perceptions. If a futile self-made signifier is saturated in a solution of lust and at a particular time transforms into a living cell capable of multiplying and growing, it is much more interesting than games of the intellect. And so there's this sense of one of he's sort of working to define what he thinks fiction is and can do in the world. And one of his solutions is it's somehow this multiplying thing. I don't want to say organic because that's a terrible word, but it's like this living, growing organism that can expand and become more than what it started out as. And that's kind of how I see the metafictional element working in this book. I started to notice it going awry. There's a, a crossover in thirty-one chapters 31 and 32. Up to this point in the book, there's been a very regular alternation every other chapter. I, you, I, you. And then for some reason, we get two you chapters back to back, and it switches over. So it switches the whole order. We've been going odd, I, even, you, and now it's even, 
I and odd U or something like that. I might be getting the math wrong here, but there's a switch over, so it's back to back. And then it starts from that point on, it, the, the wheels start to fall off a little bit more. Every once in a while, we'll get a new sort of jolt to the system. There's suddenly a chapter that's written in completely in third person, which we hadn't seen before. He has less and less control over the metafictional elements of the book as he gets farther into it and he gets more invested in it. Yeah, uh, losing control is a good way of thinking about that, too. I, 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 since we're all returning to parts of the book, I want to turn to one as well on three, 351. It's another one of these out, like chapters that stands out on its own. It's in the place of a U chapter, but it, it's about the creation myth of Nuwa, like a, an early Chinese creation myth in which the I and U sort of collapse in on one another and there are no separation of selves. And in this one, he's talking in these short like aphoristic paragraphs and one one of them he says dragging weighty thoughts you crawl about in language trying all the time to grab a thread to pull yourself up becoming more and more weary entangled in floating strands of language like a silkworm spitting out silk weaving a net for yourself wrapping yourself in thicker and thicker darkness the faint glimmer of light in your heart becoming weaker and weaker until that finally the net is a totality of chaos we're we're 350 pages into the book and at this point he's saying like this language that i'm trying to use to define the self in a very Taoist way is not permitting me to define anything it's just i'm becoming more and more enveloped in this and losing a sense of of what i am or i'm trying to describe and i feel like that's a departure maybe from some of the attempts at realism that we've discussed that he's not certain that language is a way of going up successfully going about to describe life at all that, that takes me to, I wanted to say one more thing about the structure. By the end of the book, people are constantly like asking him to write stories. They're like, I've got some material. I've got some material for a story. I'll just give it to you. You write, write a novel for me. And he says at one point, he says, I don't write fiction. I write impressions. He's sort of disavowing a, a, sort, of, a sort of totality in favor of these fleeting moments of impression, which I think tie in somehow to this idea that the like the fictional self can't emerge altogether there's this sense of incompleteness or fragmentation that he wants to get at and so for him it's like you can't tell a complete story you can't tell the story of the dragon warrior woman which is like a book that comes up at one point right or a series of books that comes up you can't tell that cohesive story all you can give are these impressions and so that's, it's kind of the way that the book works as a whole, but especially by the end as we're getting more and more jarringly fragmented, it's like he can only capture these little moments at a time. Yeah, I wonder if his paintings are impressionistic in some sense or post-impressionistic. But I liked what Soren was saying there. I, I want to go back to that chapter 52 that Soren brought us to. With respect to totality, too, there's, a, there's an interesting line. However, the totality of my misfortunes also exists within you, the unlucky demon I have invoked. Actually, you are not unlucky, for all your misfortunes have been conferred upon you by me. They are all derived from my self-love. This damned I loves only himself. So I thought that was an interesting way to complicate maybe some of the, the points both of you just raised. And I think it's interesting to think about this book as the third of our three key to all mythologies books. I feel like I like these big questions. Sometimes I demand an answer, a specific answer. <laughs> so maybe the first two books, uh, what is the key to all mythologies? The answer was skepticism. And I feel like you could also say that is the answer in this book, though I would maybe say it's pluralism. 
and I think we've kind of moved from a certain kind of skepticism or anti-philosophy like we talked about in the first two Keys to All Mythologies. And I think here there's a kind of pluralism in this fragmentation. It's not a fragmentation that says, I can't do anything, nothing gains me any ground. It's rather that many things gain me some ground, and I can't mm. pick one and put all my chips in one basket. That's mm. the kind of way I, I derive some meaning from the, the fragmentation in this book. Compared to in the last two, it seemed like there was a clear worldview at stake that mm. the author was interested in being skeptical about and fragmenting in some way. Do you want to say a little bit more about that, Carl? Because I know you were interested in one aspect of the book. Near the end, Gao Xingzhen is accused of being a nihilist. And you had an interesting read on that based on one of the other important elements of this book, which is the presence. So there's, there's the presence of Taoism in the book and the presence of Buddhism in the book. And actually also a little bit the presence of Catholicism, which is another kind of strange right. connection to Middlemarch, right? It's like people who are not Catholic sort of like looking at Catholicism from far away. There's a really wonderful passage where there's a Taoist monk and he was like, I decided I was going to become Catholic. And then I realized <laughs> the Pope's really far away. So I'm just going to be a Taoist <laughs> instead, right? Which is a wonderful, a wonderful moment here. But there's that sense of re religion is permeating this book in some ways. And then yet it's also somewhat held at a distance. And so y you had some thoughts, of, especially about the way that the, maybe the Buddhism is working in this book to combat the nihilism or to to nuance what that uh, what it means for Gao Xingzhen to maybe be some sort of nihilist this is chapter 72 which starts this isn't a novel so totally apropos of what Soren was bringing us to these are just fragments this seems to be fragments without sequence and the narrator says yeah these are fragments or stories and it's just kind of this like a story absolved of certain limits that novels have in some ways right this is a collector of stories interested in like pure story over novel or something and impressions over like finished answers or takes on the way novels should conclude or wrap up and then someone says you know you're a nihilist and we get this long almost two page long series of questions and back and forths and i know that buddhism and taoism are referred to a lot in this book and in this passage we get on page 455 and at the bottom of 454 about schizophrenia about sitting in chan contemplation about sitting not in chan contemplation about meditation about the way of nurturing the body is not the way about effability or ineffability but the absolute necessity for the effability of the way and it keeps going on with these about clauses and to me that was the heart of this long sort of answer against nihilism and i think that's a valid question to bring up in your own book if you have no answer or no system and you are skeptical what about this charge against you that you have no ground to stand on aren't you in fact a nihilist doesn't anything go if you're this skeptical and in a lot of eastern philosophy there's a stronger connection between what kind of a western gaze might see as nihilistic and compassion for instance in like a lot of Buddhist traditions, it's precisely this moment of like emptying oneself and losing one's selfhood in a metaphysical way that connects one directly to a call to compassion and to be compassionate about others. Whereas in a lot of Western religions, it's it's something else. 
one has to gain a certain aspect of selfhood or make a certain stance or compact or covenant through one's enhanced selfhood in order to become more ethical, see things more ethically, and be committed to a more ethical uh, life. But in a lot of Eastern traditions, it's a, it's a different dynamic there. And I think if the book kind of picks one tradition, it is in this moment where it's like Chan meditation and the way the Taoist sense of meditation merge in this central paradox that kind of is self-emptying. To me, that was as close as we get to the heart of things, though there's this kind of parable about Chinese philosophers where three of them go to drink out of a bowl of vinegar, and it's Confucius drinks first, and it's sour because the world is sour place. The rules of governments have deteriorated in some way from the true order. And then for the Buddha, it's bitter because material reality is uh, negative. It's illusion. It's only going to lead to suffering. So this is a bitter cup. And then for Lao Tzu, the Taoist, it's sweet because the way finds its way and one has to bend to different things happening. And so even the seemingly like unpalatable vinegar is, is sweet. And I think for Gao Jingzhan, it's it's he's like a sommelier, and he's like it's a little bitter, it's a little sweet, and at the nose, it's sour. You know, like he's kind of head to postmodern food factory. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's kind of his refined pluralistic answer. He can he can hit all of the notes, right? And he's more interested in hitting different notes than defining one as do those sort of epic three Chinese philosophers. I really like what you're saying, too, related back to your comment that this is sort of a book about pluralism in some way. Not a book about syncretism, but a book about these different ways of believing or thinking coexisting for him. And he's in that same conversation with the critic. The critic accuses him of this is a a poor imitation of modernism, Western modernism. And then he says, no, it's Eastern. And then the critic's like, that's even worse. It's worse than Eastern. (laughs) And he says, "What, what does this conform to? What form or genre? And he gives all these examples of like Chinese historical products, I should say, or or texts like gazettes of the warring states period and uh, records of human and strange events of the former and late Han or Chuan Chi romances, prompt books of the Song Dynasty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's saying none of these have forms and none of these are like ready made. So why does mine have to be? He's like, and these are types of things he's also drawing on throughout this. And he's sort of saying like, this is a a massive place with many histories and I'm allowed to sip as Carl was saying sip from each of these cups and present it as I did I don't have to only drink from the one the key to all mythologies then would be <laughs> he gets to have all of his mythologies and he doesn't need just one key <laughs> I wanted to raise the question and I know he he sort of disavows the the western influence here in some ways but I was wondering to what extent we might Look at this book as in conversation with something like the modernism of James Joyce. The only reference to a Western book that we get in here is actually to War and Peace, which is interesting. Another sort of signpost of realism maybe there. But it does strike me that this book has certain affinities to something like uh, Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. That same sense of, a, of an artist 
wandering around trying to make something make sense of himself in the world and to rebel in some ways against the strictures that are placed on him. The figure of the artist in this book is somehow resonating with the the Dedalian figure of the artist in Joyce. And, you know, thinking about the famous line from Stephen Dedalus, I go forth to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. There's something of that in this book, even though it's not, it isn't that. But there's there's some sense in which Gao Jingzhen is really trying to make sense both of his own inner self and the very chaotic social world around him. I wonder to what extent you think that those might be projects that line up somehow. For me, Stephen Dedalus in in Portrait really does have an aesthetic theory that he's very interested in defending in some sense. Aquinas and Claritas and certain aspect that becomes, you know, Joycean modernism is kind of really interested in that. Do you find in Soul Mountain a similar kind of consistent artistic approach to aesthetic value or what has aesthetic merit in each of these chapters? I don't know that I would think about it in terms of consistency. I mean, I like your, I think your idea, Carl, of of a certain pluralism is really at play here, not just at the, the philosophical or religious level, but at the level of aesthetics. There really is a dabbling, which is also sort of Joycean in a way, like maybe not Dedalian, but Joycean in the sort of, obviously in, in the dabbling of Ulysses or something. He's using certain elements, like he uses stream of consciousness at one point, but it's not a sustained treatment of it. It's just a sort of here and gone and back again. And he uses these really interesting fragments. And at one point, it's almost like he, there's like a whole chapter that's just him like engaging in a series of small pieces of art criticism. He's just offering these different takes on, a, on I think, a painting. And so there is an aesthetic. It's like a kitchen sinkism almost. Like, let's just see what sticks. But, but there is also consistency. You know, mm-hmm. for half the book, at least, we get this. It's a very regular, very solid, this alternation between the two sections. And a very, I think, a coherent style, at least within the section. So the U sections all sound pretty similar. The I sections all sound pretty similar. So I think there is some sort of aesthetic consistency, but I don't know that it rises to the level of an actual aesthetic philosophy as one aesthetic philosophy, so much as it is, like you're pointing out, a sort of patchwork philosophy. Like, let's bring in these different elements to see what works. For me, if we're comparing it to Joyce, I don't grab hold so much in my mind of the, like the going forth with the in to forge in the smithy of my soul the consciousness of my people or something and it's because I'm, i don't know my expectations very well um and it's because um he he like kind of mentions lu xuan who i know you've you've read soren maybe we all have the sort of father of modern chinese literature he mentions him and he's sort of like he is renowned in this place I'm visiting. And uh, as he is in all of China, here's this place where this character, Aq could have, that, that could have occurred. And he kind of like pays homage really quickly to this big figure and then moves on. And I feel like that, that's like where that portrait of an artist energy might lie historically. And for him, which isn't to say he's not doing something Joyce. And I think for him, he's in the Ulysses world, which I think you're pointing us to of like the exterior is penetrating in on his on his inward self and like we're getting all of the exterior world and he's like collecting as much folk history and as much as many tales as he can and that's gonna like somehow reflect 
something about himself. For him, it, it seems like such an inward search, though. It's not like he's going in to the Yangtze River Valley before the Three Gorges Dam is built and saying, like, oh, I'm going to collect the history of these places before they're flooded, which he kind of is doing, and he mentions that. He's doing it because he wants to find something about, like, me, and then to see how can I create that in literature. I, uh, I had a question for you, Soren, that's barely related, but I, if I can pivot for a sec. Like, we've talked about these moments that are meta or that, uh, that address aesthetics in some way but there are so many stories that are just like really idiosyncratic and are doing things on their own and some of them recur like there's a story that stuck with me that he's telling to she you is telling to she about like this woman pulling out her own intestines and washing them in the bath and then putting them back in and then he's like well it's because you need to clean yourself before you can blah 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 or it can be like four different other interpretations and here they are just interpret it however you want or bend it in whatever way you want but i think there are others that are maybe doing something more explicit or active that aren't just like eh, it means anything and one of them that we kind of talked about briefly before is this pursuit of the wild man and so i wanted to ask you your thoughts like there's this great part about pandas where he's like pandas are actually wild animals and they'll they'll kill you so don't treat them like they're cute fluffy things and uh, also they're they've outlived their ability to survive on their own and so why are we keeping them alive like this is really ambivalent relationship to the panda and then in that same area he starts talking about the researchers who are searching for the wild man like some sort of chinese equivalent of a yeti or a bigfoot and then it it comes back like 100 pages later and they're still and they're all these tales of like i cut off a foot of a wild man i i know that they like trying to have sex with human beings like and i was wondering what you thought of this wild man subplot that returns a few times yeah i i love the wild man as you as you might imagine can i really quickly make one point and then i'm going to get back to your wild man point it struck me as you were talking friedrich that one of the reasons why maybe this doesn't work in a joycean mold is that Stephen Dedalus is occupying as we all know like a very small island and it is heterogeneous in some ways maybe more so than he wants to admit but in some ways if he can kind of close his eyes he can imagine himself forging the the unforged conscience of his race right the irish race and part of the problem in this but in soul mountain you know sort of working against that is just you literally do not have one race of people right 55 ethnicities yeah right there's a bunch of different ethnicities at play here and so it doesn't map as easily on and that's it's partly what he explores through the book he goes into these regions that are the meow people who are not who are kind of an oppressed minority it seems like versus the Han majority in, in China. And so there's the, there's this built-in heterogeneity about it. And, and I think that's part of the reason, to go back to your, your example of these tales, like part of the reason the tales are doing so many different things, have so many different registers, is that China is a, an incredibly diverse place and there's different people groups that are going to make different things of these different stories and they're going to tell them differently and they're going to mean different things. Mm. So I think that that's maybe part of what's going on. But thinking about the wild man, I love the wild man. It's so wonderful. And, and I love your connection back to the to the pandas, which come in at the very beginning. He's like in the panda reserve, hanging out with the park rangers. And then we come back later and he's in this different region and they're like, did you see the wild man? We like, everybody's seen the wild man. We've all seen him. And there's so many different ways in which this plays. It's like, you're right. At certain points, it's like a Yeti, a, a, a Sasquatch creature mm-hmm. um, that's just roaming around mysteriously, has always been there in the mountains. And then you have this almost like like evolutionary idea that comes into play. He talks about Thomas Huxley at one point. One of the characters says, we think the wild man is like an unevolved hominid, basically, right? It's mm-hmm. like a like a neanderthal or something who just hasn't evolved and is just sitting there 
I love that idea in the, running through the book because you get that sort of sense to, to go back to Middlemarch for a minute where you have history, like in Rome, history just built on top of itself. Mm-hmm. It's that same idea like out in the Chinese countryside. It's like humans are here, homo sapiens are here, but maybe there's also this other race of humans that are just have just been like built on top of and they're just roaming out in the mountains. And then there's like a third valence of this, which is a political valence because at one point he meets somebody and he's like, I was going to get convicted. And so I like, I ran away into the woods and I just, I've lived here for 50 years. It's just a guy who's been living in the woods for 50 years, begging off of people. And so he's the sort of political wild man. He's like, cannot be contained by the political structure of China. And so there's all these valences to the, the wild man and how it's working. I don't know what you think, Carl, but I'd be interested to know, like, is the, is the wild man here as sort of an emblem of freedom or is it the savagery of nature or is it all those things, like, what do you feel like the valence of the wild man is for Gaoxing Zhan? To me, it connects to a lot of these other points where there are these rundowns of kind of the aspects of these different philosophies that he's more into. And one that was really interesting to me is this sense that, like, there is this kind of 90s X-Files episode sense of, like, a missing link, <laughs> like, monster out there, right, who's, like, evolved differently and it has these sort of more crystallized aspects of like raw nature nature red and tooth and claw right and that idea seems like really important in the book and kind of to me wasn't really ever undercut in the wild man story aspect or a lot of just like the evil that's out there in nature there are a few moments where it's like nature and like people as part of nature inherently have a lot of violence there's like an inescapable violent and wild aspect to just people who are out in the country right Mm -hmm. and this to me was really it was a moment where the political kind of overshadows the religious or the philosophical because a lot of these things about i guess you you might tie some of that to like the maya the illusion or the suffering of nature in buddhism but to the way in Taoism, it doesn't really um, line up to me, this sense of inherent badness out mm-hmm. there in people, right? But it does line up to me with a exile's criticism of the ways 20th century communism played out, which was a inability to understand that isolated people are more like they are in Lord of the Flies than they are in Robinson Crusoe, right? To come back to a point I made before. People, if there is no society around to watch them, Gao Jin is siding on the way that Lord of the Flies plays out. There's going to be some problems with that idea about an inherently good human nature scaled up on a social level. That's not going to work. And I feel that being his political analysis and part of his exile as to what grounds those kinds of claims coming back in the book. But that's just my take. I don't know. Could be wrong. In um, Elizabeth Gaskell's amazing biography of Charlotte Bronte, after Charlotte Bronte's death, she goes to West Yorkshire. Elizabeth Gaskell's like, these people are violent and dirty and they're not like we in like we people in London. They are something else. And like there's some like <laughs> generic element of that here. Like we're going out to seek the wild man and it's a political thing. It's also like Carl was saying, like it's an isolated rural parochial like violence in some way that 
he's accessing. I also, though, as I was as I was reading this, and you were talking about like the ways that 20th century communism unfolded, and and thinking about this, I, I mean, talking about pluralism, thinking about this as a response to like the social realism of like everyone in China, regardless of this pluralism. Mm-hmm. should adhere to these principles of art. Right. And you should all be creating people with great virtues, whatever like that. But this is an interesting response to it because it's it's about someone who's like talking occasionally about sent down youth sent to the countryside for re-education and like maybe this person died because they were they were sent down to the countryside. Right. Chen Kaige, the director was a, a red guard who was part of this. <laughs> and this is like a going down to the countryside and like re doing re-education just in like the inverse way of like I've I've now lived through the Cultural Revolution. I've lived through where we're opening up and I'm being criticized for my artwork. I'm going back to re-educate myself in the countryside, but it's not in labor. It's in uh, odd pursuits of like local folk traditions. So one thing I was thinking about in terms of the political elements at play in the book, I thought of this, you know, kind of famous William Gibson quote, which is, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And it seems like part of the, again, to think about like history as being layered on top of itself. One of the things that seems to be going on here is that Gao Jingzheng kind of likes the countryside because it hasn't fully acclimated to the sort of leveling effect of the government that the government wants to bring. I'm thinking here about, this isn't in communist China, but in the communist government of Mongolia, I believe, when they came into power, they tried to get rid of every last name. They just like got rid of last names um, to like every to like even everything out. And so then later, when they tried to like redo last names, people just had to kind of pick them at random, and everybody was like picking the same three names. Right, so it's just a giant mess. The phone books are awful, right? But there's this sense of like the desire to sort of flatten that that comes in with the government to sort of have this level of homogeneity and control you just i mean especially with a country as big as china you just can't do it successfully all the way and so there are these pockets especially up in these mountains right where people just sort of do their own thing there's a wonderful section where he follows this folk singer back to his house like he walks miles and miles to this guy's village and then the guy puts him up and he's like, we're going to have a wild party and everybody's singing crude songs. And then all of a sudden it's this super awkward moment because the town official barges in and stops them. And it's the guy's son, the, the, the folk singer's son. And he's like, dad, you know, you're not supposed to be doing this stuff. Yes. Right. <laughs> but it's like he doesn't have any real power because it's like clear that his dad is like really the one who has the the cachet in the village, like the people are listening to him and not to the village official, even though he's the one with the the formal power over things. And so it's this sense of just an unevenness in the way that the government control is being filtered down. And it's kind of funny if, you you know, thinking about Gao Jingzhen himself, he leaves Beijing because he's afraid of being sent to a re-education farm, basically. But when he goes out into the countryside, he's always flashing his writer credentials. And they're I like, oh, you're that, a writer. Yeah. <laughs> you're a writer from Beijing. Wow, you're really important. And he's like, if the if the, peop- the, the the officials in Beijing knew about this, they'd probably be like, okay, you got, like, arrest this guy, send him to the education camp. But he's just like flashing his credentials everywhere. And everybody's like, wow, this is amazing. And nobody bothers to check anything, right? And so there's this wonderful sense of like, of an eccentricity. I think so, one of you brought up that word earlier, like just an eccentricity that's available out in these far-flung regions that he seems to really cherish. Just a side note for longtime listeners. He's sort of like a Bill Harford character flashing his 
uh, medical credentials in Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> he's always like, I don't know if this means anything, but here's my writer's association card. And sometimes they're like, you need to go to the local office and get that stamped. And sometimes they're like, whoa, yeah, all right. Yeah, I'll tell you my story. There's also a Chinese proverb that translates to the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. And I think that's speaking to what you're talking about, Soren, that like it's sort of a checkerboard geographically. Yeah, there's not enforcement all the time that you can kind of do your own thing, as you said. To twist all these points, uh, maybe all the way back around, there is also kind of a federal writer's project feel to this novel, which makes it kind of interestingly Americanly communist, to use the total wrong appellation there, but hopefully you get the sense of what I'm trying to draw. But it was interesting in, in, to think of it in that context for a second. You can imagine the gather up the folk songs would be like a good, like a, f- a federal writer's project project. Absolutely. Right. I think they Definitely. did some of that, right? Like they were right, doing yeah, some, yeah. something and, like that. And to think of it as like kind of like a Zora Neale Hurston-esque book to make a early 20th century analog. So since we had a lot of interesting discussion on the nature of history, what history means, and who enters or doesn't enter the chronicle of history when we were talking about Middlemarch, I thought that this passage on page 450 was an interesting return to that theme in this book. And so it's kind of a poem. I'll just read it. It's, and it's on someone's tomb, used tomb, and he deciphers it. Gaoxing Jen deciphers it. In used tomb, there are now artifacts for reference, but the experts still cannot decipher the tadpole-like script on the stone epitaph opposite the main hall. I look at it from various angles, ruminate for a long time, and suddenly it occurs to me that it can be read in this way. History is a riddle. It can also be read as history is lies. And it can also be read as history is nonsense. And yet it can be read as history is prediction. And then it can be read as history is sour fruit. Yet still it can be read as history clangs like iron, and it can be read as history is balls of wheat flour dumplings, or it can be read as history is shrouds for wrapping corpses, or taking it further it can be read as history is a drug to induce sweating, or taking it further it can also be read as history is ghosts banging on walls, and in the same way it can be read as history is antiques, and even history is rational thinking, or even history is experience, and even history is proof, and even history is a dish of scattered pearls, and even history is a sequence of cause and effect, or else history is analogy, or history is a state of mind, and furthermore, history is history, and history is absolutely nothing, even history is sad size, oh history, oh history, oh history, oh history, actual history can be read anyway, and this is a major discovery. I think that that, Carl, really nicely brings us back to one of your main points, which is there is a sense of plurality running through this book, extending even to the historical. What exactly is history doing for Gao Jingzhen? It's doing a lot of things. It's working as prediction for the future. It's working as sour fruit, right? That sourness that you taste, right? It's working as something to induce sweating. It's lies. It's an analogy. It's all of these things sort of wrapped into one. I love this, that he ruminates on it and reflects on it from different angles, like a jewel that you have to hold up and look at in different lights or something like that. And that's Like a pier glass. Like a pier glass. Yes, wonderful. Bringing it all back together. Like a pier glass. What ends up happening is the very form of the book itself, Soul Mountain, 
takes on that form of examining from many angles. And what's reflected there is not just Gao Jingzhan's inner self, but it's some sense of the historical as well in all of its multifacetedness. So I think that's really nice. That's also, I think, a good place for us to stop for now. We're going to be back next time. We're moving into section three of this season, which we're calling Lonely Women in Your Area. We're <laughs> thinking about connecting back to, to Middlemarch through the character largely of Dorothea, but also, of course, of Rosamund Vinci. And uh, we're starting with Carl's second pick, which is Kate Chopin's The Awakening, a classic of American literature about a lonely woman. So we're going to come back and talk about that next time. But until then, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Welcome to Postmodern Food Factory. Welcome back to another exciting, seasonally appropriate episode of Postmodern Food Factory. Just in time for Halloween, we have rounded up one of nature's grossest outputs. Truly terrifying. We have bought each of us to our own a Bud Light Seltzer Fall Flannel Pack. This is a four-pack variety of hard seltzers. We have Apple Crisp, Maple Pear, Pumpkin Spice, and Toasted Marshmallow. And yes, dear listeners, we will be trying these all on the air because we love you and we hate our bodies. We're going to sample them in descending order from what's an acceptable flavor for a seltzer, starting with apple crisp, which is pretty acceptable. If you squint, apple crisp could be a seltzer flavor. Yes. yes. Maple pear, not sure what maple would be doing in there, so a little farther away. Pumpkin spice, perhaps the entire raisin d'etre of this project for Bud Light, (laughs) because they're probably capitalizing on that. And then toasted marshmallow, the real jelly belly in the situation here. I should note this is also the order of my least to highest expectations. So, <laughs> oh, good. You're, the you're most crushing on that toasted marshmallow candy flavor is the one I want the best. Good. I want to say just a word about this though. How strange this concept is to me. This is part of the reason I glommed on here. Not just the flannelness of it, which is great too. I feel like I'm about to drink Eddie Vedder. But the fact that Anheuser Busch Brewing Company, uh, Anheuser InBev, or whatever it is now, what's it? The Anheuser-Busch company decided we're going to launch a a line of hard seltzers. And the brand they chose to go with was Bud Light, which is, in fact, the best-selling brand of beer in the United States, at least. Probably not in the world, but in the United States, it is the best-selling beer. But I'm struck by, like, the the miracle of branding here. It's, like, specifically Bud Light seltzer, when in reality, like, there's no connection to Bud Light itself. There's no Bud Light in here. (laughs) It could easily have been... Budweiser seltzer. Yes. Do you have theories about this? Bud seltzer, Budweiser seltzer, Anheuser-Busch seltzer, anything. <laughs> Could have been anything. Bud ice. My, my, my theory is that it's 
a healthy choice like Bud Light. And so it's mm-hmm. trying to get you, people who would drink Bud Light to say like, oh, this is the alternative to beer. It's my light choice. No, no, no. It's all about the it's all about the Bud Light brand. The Bud Light brand is like the goofy, weird, those Super Bowl Bud Light commercials, right? That kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like the less classy because the because the Budweiser, well, nowadays at least the Budweiser is all about like the Clydesdales and keeping it classy. There's like five thousand commercials with Clydesdales for Budweiser, but then mm-hmm. Bud Light is like goofy, larping people and whatever, you know. I think and that's so, good. That to me is the. Is that the makes sense to me. It's like your fun wine ant or something. Okay, well, I'm terrified. These. There's four of them. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I know that I know that I don't know what your status is, Carl. But Friedrich and I were discussing before we hit record here. We have never either of us tried a hard seltzer. We are both never. fans of of regular seltzer. We both enjoy a seltzer plain, a day at least, probably. Yes. Yeah. Um, both 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 of the plain and the like the lightly flavored variety, grapefruit things like that. But we've never had a hard seltzer. Uh, what where do you stand in all this, Carl? That's funny because I don't like seltzers, the normal ones. But what if I had that's a hard seltzer? I know I've had one because I try all these horrible products. Vizzy, maybe? Ugh, that sounds bad. Something like that. Is it one of these ones that's like also caffeinated and like full of antioxidants? Or something? White Claw. I've definitely what? tried White Claw. Yeah, you have. And True, Truly, Trulia, isn't that one of them? True, like something like that. Not Topo yeah, Chico like makes one. You guys like Topo Chico. Mm. You? Actually, was, mm. when I was in Texas, I was going to try the Topo Chico hard seltzer. It only came in 12 packs, and I was like, there's no oh. way I'm drinking 12 of these. When was I it a ranch water order. seltzer? Like the, the seltzer was in the shape of a of a ranch or a ranch flavored dressing? Ra- ranch water is like this drink. It's like the hipster drink now. It's Topo Chico and te- tequila and lime. It's oh, like its I own thought seltzer. it was a drink in the flavor of ranch dressing. No. <laughs> if that exists, we should try it. That's... I have had, you know what I have had before is buffalo chicken wing soda. <laughs> it's oh my God. an abomination. Okay, anyway, back back to the matter at hand. Are you ready to do this? Or are we ready to crack with open? the uh, Al Borson of Bud Light Seltzers here? <laughs> yes, we are. I was going to say the classic <laughs> Wisconsin red flannel. Yes, the red flannel here. That's another good reason to start with it. It's the only actual, well, I guess the maple pear, like green flannel is kind of real, but red flannel is where it is at. So we're going to open up the apple crisp now and give it a shot. We should say, friends, so so you're not too worried about us. We are not going to plan on drinking all of any of these. Speak these for yourself. Cans. Okay. Carl's, oh, sorry. Carl's ready I'm to rock sorry. and roll. <laughs> it smells like apple juice to me. It smells like hard like cider. Yeah, it smells good. All right, are we ready to do this? Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> oh wow! Oh uh, no! Nope. Hmm. It is alcoholic, so all of our listeners under twenty-one, you know, you'll have to wait. But Sword and I have both uh, at separate times in our lives been to uh, the Great Smoky Mountains and in Gatlinburg <laughs> Tourist Trap. They sell hard cider, and this reminds me of like if you took one of those cups of hard cider and mixed it with like a barrel of water and you would just get a little bit of that hard cider flavor and the rest <laughs> would just so be true. like dirty water it is like that's do you want a delicious fall hard cider yeah this is like one one hundredth of that in a can. <laughs> you know it is like i'm getting mostly there's a little bit of apple but it's mostly the crisp like the cinnamoniness yeah. what it reminds yeah. me of is like when my wife will make an apple 
crisp or an apple turnover. And there'll be the little bits that are stuck to the bottom of the pan. If you were to go to wash it out and you like you filled it up with dishwater and then you drank exactly. that. <laughs> That's what it would be like. I gotta be honest though, I don't hate it. I thought I would hate it. I don't I don't hate it. I'm not I'm loving gonna, it. I it's it's weird. I'm gonna about say the aftertaste. Too, that when it comes to these versus ciders that are so sugary, I like that this has almost like no sugar in it. It's really not it's just a little just Carl's a little watching sweet. his figure. The cane sugar that's in it, though, is cold fermented, according that's, to the can. That's probably bad. I don't so know what that means. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I guess that's what makes it alcoholic, huh? Is like, It's ma- actually the sugar that is. It has malted think... rice, which is like the Bud Light thing, but like Bud Light's made with rice as opposed to oh, that's right. wheat or whatever, right? Speaking of watching your figure, it's got the 100 calories, too, so, oh, so it's not it bad. Is, maybe it's it is gluten-free. Light. You could chug this whole thing, all 12 ounces of it, and you'd be fine. From that perspective, I can't take the smell. This it tastes okay, yeah. but the smell is really bad. Yeah, yeah. It's that I melted rice. <laughs> okay, are you ready to move on to maple pear? This is the type of flannel that you would wear in high school when you branch out a little bit from your stock flannels. You're like, maybe I can pull this one off. Yeah, the pumpkin spice flannel should be worn by no one. <laughs> Why anyone would wear bright orange construction flannel makes no sense to me. This is like this green flannel that makes me think about like a goth high school girl who's like into Irish dancing. Mm, yeah. This is what she would wear around. <laughs> With that little hazel cross across it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I'm really right. excited for a maple pear. What a yep. bizarre combo. A combo. It's We're a going fall. there. All right, I'm opening it. Color-coded duck. Uh, Oh, also. yeah. Take a, take a sniff. It is not. It smells like it is. butterscotch candy. It's <laughs> raunchy. <laughs> raunchy. Like a, or like a Werther's original. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. It does smell like that. Mm. It, they should have just made it butterscotch flavored. Or, or grandfather flavored. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, are we trying it? All right, down the hatch, boys. <laughs> All right. Oh, nope. Do not want. <laughs> wow, it's, it's so, so it's so mapley. Yeah. It's, it's so, but it's so medicinal. It's like, <laughs> no, dude. This is my deep Wisconsin ooh. speaking. I love the maple taste. Wow, it does taste but, like maple syrup. Like, it's in yeah, there. it tastes yeah. like maple syrup cider. That's what it should. I don't be know called. if I'm getting any pear. Me neither. This is like, ooh, one sip of that's really good and never want to touch it again. Two sips makes me sick to my stomach. I think the... Are you getting any pair, Soren? <laughs> no, I got no pair. It's a bad pairing. Apple. Listeners, Soren's face is, is deeply troubled. He is <laughs> He's got hurting. bitter beer face. <laughs> <laughs> bitter beer face. I think there's something about these seltzers. Maybe this is just like a... I'm not a I guess I'm not a hard seltzer person. Oh, it's got this has got stevia leaf extract in it. Ew. No wonder. Yeah. Maybe that's what makes it light. That's what I think of what I'm tasting. Like the medicinal aftertaste is like the artificial sweetener Absolutely. in it. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah, it's in all of them. No wonder. Okay. It's not that explains the, it. It's not in the apple one, though. It's not? It's in the other three. Uh-oh. Whew. You're right. It kind of tastes like that um, pina colada flavored dum-dum. <laughs> Remember those? I do. Those tasted way better than 
What was your favorite? What was your preferred dum dum flavor at the bank? I was always a root beer or a butterscotch guy. Butterscotch. Yeah, butterscotch I was is also good. butterscotch. Hate to say, I'm a. It's a great day when you time. get that butterscotch dum dum from the bank. <laughs> y'all weren't y'all weren't root beer fans though. The root no, that beer, one, root beer. one was good. Yeah, but I want the, the beer keg shaped hard candies, barrel shaped hard candies. A and W ones. Yeah, that's Ooh, yeah. what I want. That's beautiful. I also like the cotton candy flavor dum dum. That's a rare choice, but I think a good one. All right, we ready to move on? Yeah, Hunter Orange. I'm gonna I'm gonna mix all four together at the end and try that. Ooh. So I, I suggest y'all join. Please do. That, I hope you actually base. do. Oh, this is um, this is like a like a University of Tennessee cheerleader orange. I think <laughs> and that's what they will be drinking. It's the pumpkin spice Bud Light seltzer. Oh wow. Oh good God! This smells like. <laughs> it smells like. What's like? What oh, that? that smells so bad. It smells like Not burnt egg. pumpkin cookies or something. Wow. This is. Good. <sighs> mm. Oh. Nope. <laughs> Someone has doubled going? over with with horror. <laughs> what is going on here? Dying. <laughs> this one's really bad. This one's unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. This is like, do you want pumpkin spice, that flavor that goes really well with like a strong coffee flavor? What if we removed that strong backing? It's just this pumpkin spice on like nothingness, but like a lot <laughs> of nothingness. It's bad. Oh, it's yeah. It's just like taking pumpkin spice like out of like a Penzi's spice jar and just putting it in your mouth. <laughs> we will never speak of this again. <laughs> Wait, I have a comparison. This is going to be it's extremely loose connection here but this flavor reminds me of in metal gear solid 2 when you're fighting the boss vamp and you're over the oxygenated water and if you fall into the oxygenated water it's so oxygenated that you can't swim out of it so you die and you have to start over that's like this flavor it's so much like you're just lost in that you can't get out of it you're a master of words friedrich All right, take your last swig because we got to move on to toasted toasted marshmallow, which is what Carl's excited about here. He wants to he wants to chug this one. Yeah, I'm really dis I'm really disappointed in the pumpkin. Yeah, it was bad. I'm gonna try it one more time just to make sure it's bad. Back in the grandpa zone here for the for the flannel on this one, right? Uh, <laughs> is this is like a western. Even? It's like a western shirt that your grandpa would be wearing out on the farm. Oh, you know? Yeah, that's perfect. Wow, your flannel. Uh, metaphors. You're a flanur of flannel. <laughs> no, All right. With the gold top on this one. Oh, oh yeah. Classy. Why did they oh. go toasted marshmallow and not full s'mores? Ooh, the technology wow. just doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one's this one actually smells more promising, this maybe. This one smells great. It's like I'm in a Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> or a, that's not what I was trying to say. It's like I'm in a. What's the name of that store? It's not Bed Bath and Beyond. What is it? Yankee Candle. Yankee. <laughs> what's the name of this Bath and Body Works? It's like I'm in a Bath and oh, Body yeah, Works. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yankee Candle. I like that. That was a good point. In Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> in a bed of these this flannel that smells like these things. Are we drinking it? We okay, drinking I'm drinking it. it. I'm drinking it. Here we go. Ugh. Oh no. 
Oh. Yes. That's the worst one. <laughs> Carl's all in, all over this. You can have mine, Carl. Send it to yes. you. <laughs> Easily the worst one in my mind. Really? Oh. <laughs> it's better this than the pumpkin spice. Bites. All of the research, all of the marketing. I Just took like I four, or five, six drinks of the other ones. Four tonight. <laughs> I took a lot of drinks of the other ones, and this one I think I, I'm done already. It's. Oh. It does remind me a little bit of like a bad coffee drink. Yes. Yeah. It's got definitely a, it's got like a coffee-ish aftertaste. It tastes like when you're in college and you have the first like those first drinks of alcohol are always like poorly flavored vodkas, like a vanilla vodka. That's what that reminds me of. Okay. But really weak version of it, but that same quality of fake vanilla. There's something mm. to me about the marshmallowy and fake vanilla taste that like it's just always that same fakeness that I like. You want to curl up in it? And so it kind of just still works a little bit for me in this. But again, with the maple one, I want one sip. I like it. And I could never drink this whole thing. I'd feel sick. Yeah, I, don't really, I already don't feel good. Okay. I'm going to get a glass to mix them all together a little bit and try. I will join you in solidarity. Yeah, same. Listeners, we are now combining all four of these into a single toxic sludge. Like Captain Planet. It's really disconcerting to me that, I mean, I guess this is true of all seltzers, of course, but there's no color here. And so, right. It's just weird, clear concoctions made by Bud Light scientists. It's like I'm on the Snowpiercer train. They're feeding me bugs. (laughs) All right. Are we doing this? Shout out to the kid who at Taco Bell just hit, hits all of the soda machine buttons and has yeah. that and drinks are you, it. Are you, are you doing this in one go? I'm not like downing it all. I'm just, I'm like, just gonna, We're going to sip. We're going to sip. We're going to sip. <laughs> I don't want to die. Cheers. That is more tolerable than any of them by the <laughs> I itself. I How did this happen? <laughs> now maybe I am getting a little pear. The apple's bringing the Four pear. Four wrongs <laughs> make a right. Apparently, because this is much more tolerable than any of them by themselves. Yeah. It defies all logic. We just want a general feeling and taste of fall and flannel. <laughs> yeah. I think that the being able to identify specific flavors is detrimental to the experience of drinking these. And if you, it's just vague <laughs> spice and fruit, it's okay. <laughs> I buy oh. that theory. Well, what are we going to, gentlemen, are we going to rent, are we going to, are we going to rate these? I will say on just one, sh- one taste. I have a different rating than on if I had to drink the whole thing. That's fine. I think we should do the one taste rating. Well, on my flannel scale, (laughs) the lowest being some sort of Cisco-esque flannel (laughs) G-string. And the highest being like a full set of long johns for that. those, (laughs) Those cold North Dakota and Minnesota and Wisconsin nights. I see. It's about coverage. It's about, it's about coverage. coverage. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this at like a um, like a tankini maybe or something. Like, it wasn't the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life, but it was not pleasant, and I did not enjoy it. No. Yeah, and having seen your face, I can say that's a hundred percent true. Well, I like this scale. Uh, I think you're. It's useful. I would say most of them, the two fruit ones, you know. They're like a decent like swimming trunk. They'll cover you, but they're not. And then the pumpkin spice, maybe like a Speedo. 
but for the toasted marshmallow, I'm going to say it's full on over the shoulder Borat swimming suit. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then the altogether one is like almost a pair of pants. It's all right. It's like like a Kevin Smith George. <laughs> it's like a. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna give the marshmallow the highest rating. Wow. Which is a low, like a deep V cut romper, oh. flannel wow. romper. Wow. I just liked something about that one. Shout out to Coach Cutler, my middle school gym teacher, who would always wear deep cut V-necks with his yeah. chest hair just spilling out everywhere. And then second, just on like pure one taste, I'm going to give Maple Pear like a like a wrestler's singlet <laughs> of coverage, flannel coverage. That's good. Then I'm going to give like bike shorts to the apple crisp. And I don't know about this pumpkin spice, man. That's like... <laughs> it's, it's pretty dire. That's yeah. like uh, ankle ankle socks flannel. <laughs> oh man! Well, we're still alive for now. That's a that's a positive. We have survived another episode of Postmodern Food Factory. Until next time, stay safe. Do not drink Bud Light Seltzer Fall Flannel Pack, please. This has been another episode of Postmodern Food. Factory.